0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm honored to say that we have John Lucas on the show. His new book, Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat, The Dire Warning, has just appeared from Basic Books. As some of you may know, the title of the book comes from a speech given by Winston Churchill as he became Prime Minister of the UK during World War II, in which he said... He had nothing but blood, toil, tears, and sweat to offer. Um, John is a terrific historian and a wonderful stylist, and I should say a very interesting person to talk to. I found the interview with him to be enlightening and entertaining, and in addition, provocative in equal parts. I hope that you find the interview, all three of those things as well. Here it is. Good morning, John.
1: Good morning,
0: Marshall. Um, How are you today?
1: Uh, I am fine. It's going to be a very hot
0: day here. Yes, well, I think it's going to be very hot here as well. It happens in the summer, especially here in Iowa. Um, Actually, my in-laws just moved to Philadelphia, so I uh, I envy you very much. It's a beautiful city. Um, Let me tell our audience that today we are um, very pleased and honored, I should say, to have John Lucas on the show. Uh, He is an esteemed historian, one of the deans of American history and the author of many, many books. I I would um, read the titles of them, which I have a list of in front of me, but I'm afraid it would take up all of our time. So I, I will just tell you that Uh, He has a very nice Wikipedia entry on the Internet, and you can uh, read his bibliography, which is incredibly extensive there. Today we'll be talking about his book, Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat, The Dire Warning, which has just come out from Basic Books. I've just finished the book, and to tip my hand, I I loved it. I thought it was absolutely terrific, and a model for the kind of popular history which I I would like to write myself. Um, Of course, John has been honing his craft for um, decades and decades, and and, uh, I hope to uh, achieve that mark. perhaps in, I don't know, 30 years. (laughs) Um, So, John, uh, what I would like you to do at the beginning of the interview is tell the audience a little bit about yourself, where you were born, um, where you grew up, how you became interested in history and that kind of thing. Could you do that for us?
1: Well, I'm now in the 85th year of my life, which uh allows one to have a somewhat broader retrospective (laughs) when you are 30, 40, and 50. Mm -hmm. I was born in Hungary, and uh, partly, uh, this has something to do with my ability to write. My mother was uh, very much of an Anglomaniac, sent me to school in England. Mm -hmm. I came back to Hungary, spent a war in Hungary. Then the Russians came to Hungary. I was very certain that uh, sooner or later rather sooner than later uh, Hungary is going to be Sovietized at least temporarily I was able to leave the country um, illegally but uh, it wasn't very difficult came to the United States Uh, this is now this is my 63rd year in the United States Mm -hmm. and I decided to Uh, settle here to establish a family. I had to leave my family and uh, my country uh, to establish a house, a family, and a career. And uh, the career, of course, I became a... College professor, but I was principally not at the expense of my teaching interested in writing and writing not about my native country, but whatever interested me in history. I had some kind of history degree in Hungary, but um, it's not the academic step ladder that interested me, but the ability to write. And uh, so, my first book. Uh, of course, written in English was now published 55 years ago. And uh, I've written many books since then. I've written books that took me 13 years to write and be published. I had books that took me six months to write. <laughs> and, uh, and this is not necessarily reflected in their Quantity or the quality? By quantity, I mean uh, page numbers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the book, uh, this last book you're talking about, is a very small book. It only took me about five or six months to mm-hmm. write. Not oh, but the principal reason for this is not that the that it's a small book, only about hundred fifty, hundred sixty pages, but also because I knew this subject very well and uh, in other words behind this i mean this rested on kind of accumulated intellectual capital Mm -hmm. uh the month of may 1940 this only deals with one speech in a way only one day in the month of May 1940, but I've written at least five books that deal with England in May 1940 in detail. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm, I see. Um, Let me ask you this question. Why uh, did you decide to um, settle in the United States rather than in Great Britain? If your mother was an Anglophile, Uh, and you had this connection. Uh,
1: This this was uh, almost a mere accident um, after the Russians came to Hungary, and after there the Allied military mission, by accident, by coincidence, it's really a coincidence, and to some extent, the geography of the city, Budapest, where we lived, I had far more contact with Americans than I had with British, mm-hmm. and so the Americans... Helped me the Americans promised me that once I get out of Hungary and I had to leave illegally i didn 't have a passport, um, I will get a visa for the united States uh-huh. that was it
0: uh-huh. I see that 's very interesting. I um used to work with and uh, just wrote an actual a long review and um a kind of retrospective of Richard Pipes's life. Do you know Richard Pipes? Yes, I do. Yes, 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 and, and uh, he has a story that's uh, somewhat reminiscent of yours, and he landed in the United States also somewhat by accident, and um, both of you have been a, a great a great credit to us, I should say that, by way of compliment. Now, almost all of your work has dealt, as uh, you say, with the era surrounding World War II. Uh, why is that?
1: Well, not real well then. Not really, you know. Yes, I am uh, perhaps known as a World War II historian, Mm -hmm. but, uh, uh, well, uh, partly, of course, you know, I lived in Hungary in the First World War and the Second World War, and uh, uh, these were the formative years of my life. Mm And, um, very soon after the war, I began to sense and feel, and also, uh, documents were available. That's a minor, uh, um, thing of practice and method. After the Second World War, far more documents and archives were available than the usual. But I, I thought and perhaps even felt that this, uh, that, that, uh, There's a lot of untruth and half-truth current about the Second World War. And uh, in a way, I, I, I think that probably the underlying motive or purpose was that I wanted to correct them, mm-hmm. and you see, this this corresponds very much with my main interest, which is not the Second World War, but which is the which is the writing of history. I mm-hmm. might even say, the epistemology, to use a big word of history. What, what, and how? What do we know about the past?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and uh, how should we? more or less properly attempt to reconstruct the past. Um, You see, the the, the, the entire, the whole truth is not given to human beings, but what's given to us, the pursuit of the truth.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And uh, and, uh, in my regard, the main task of the historian is to to correct and revise and refashion half-truths and Mm untruths.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about half-truth and non-truth as it concerns World War II particularly. This is something that I uh, study as well. Uh, What were some of the half-truths and mistruths that you were trying to correct when you began your career writing about um, the Second World War?
1: Well, there's an entire long
2: list
1: of them, but uh, but one of the most important ones is a very... It's a very odd thing you asked me about England. You see, it's interesting that toward the end of my career, in the last 15 and 20 years, oddly enough, my reputation is perhaps even more serious in England than anywhere else in the United States, uh, including the United States, because I've written three or four or five books about Churchill, I'm not a Churchill expert, but about this particular period, mm-hmm. and perhaps the most important, or perhaps an underlying thing, again in retrospect, you know, I don't think that this was uh, a very conscious and direct purpose when I wrote this books. is that uh, don't underestimate either Churchill or Hitler, that um, in the summer of 1940, Hitler came very close to winning the second world war. Mhm.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I I agree, I agree with you completely and I I was taught in the tradition I believe that probably informed by your own writing and I uh, tell my students that really he had won the war by around May 1940. And certainly at the beginning of June in 1941 things looked Beyond bad, um, and so I, I guess I would, yes, yes, say, and you
1: know another thing which goes back to the Cold War and the American obsession with communism. You see, it's not so odd that I should say that who have have been a very early and very consistent anti-communist. But uh, uh, you see, I mean, here was Germany and Hitler. Here were eighty million people and uh, they got themselves involved in a world war where against them stood against them there was the there was the British Empire with hundreds of millions of people and there was Russia at that time hundred and fifty million people and the United States hundred and fifty million people, another hundred and fifty million people with all their enormous technical and material superiority and it took them six years to defeat Germany.
2: Mm-hmm, no.
1: And neither one of them could have done it alone.
2: Yeah, I, I... And
1: the odd thing is that two of them together couldn't have done it.
0: So do you believe it that... needed all three. Yes, I see what you're saying. I, I quite agree with you. Do you believe that... Um, part, well, let's put it this way. Was part of the... Um, Was part of the misinformation, I guess you might say, that you were trying to overturn or correct, the notion that somehow the winning of the war was inevitable?
1: A little bit. I mean, as you know, nothing is inevitable in history, but but that we have to look at this... uh Man, Hitler differently. I mean, uh, we, we certainly uh, do not want to rehabilitate him. Although there are people who are, in, in rather subtle ways, trying to rehabilitate him, that uh, that uh, he was not a madman. In many ways, he was a he was a genius.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, you know, a, a bad genius, a yes. genius not not without. Him. I think he was the most extraordinary figure in. This the history
0: of an entire century uh-huh. no i think that's probably right i would uh I, I might make a case for lenin but i would probably concede to you in all your wisdom um let's turn directly to the book then um and uh here's a question that I've I'm not a Churchill expert and you are, so I, I will just take this opportunity to um feed my own curiosity. Why uh Churchill was wrong about a lot of things and he was definitely right about one, and that was Hitler and Germany. How did he how was he able to understand Hitler so early?
1: Well, this is, you know, this is kind of insight. There, there, in, in, this is almost mysterious. Just like, you know, human insight, some, some stabs of insight, illumination you have is mysterious. There's a great English historian who does not deal with the Second World War, but I consider him the greatest historian alive. His name is Owen Chadwick. He really deals with religious history. Mm-hmm. And he once said that every, every... Every event in history has a touch. Of, every 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 event has an element of, of mystery in mm-hmm. it, and mm-hmm. I, I absolutely agree with it. Mm-hmm. Just as I say, I am often described as uh, uh, wrongly as uh, extreme conservative and aristocratic and elitist, I'm the one who who, who emphasizes that every human being since Adam and Eve was and is a historical person.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm.
1: know, that uh, Shakespeare said that there's history in everyone's lives.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to, the, to come back to your question, it is amazing that, that, that Churchill had an instinct about Hitler. He, uh, he understood much of him. And this is very interesting because uh, usually Englishmen uh, are not very much interested in Europeans. They don't know, uh, they don't understand very much. They're not particularly interested about their psyche and so forth. But when it comes to the duel of these two people, uh, this was not decisive. But it was very important that Churchill understood Hitler. Better than Hitler understood him.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, let me uh, propose a hypothesis, um, as weak as it might be. Uh, while reading your book, it struck me that um, Churchill was a real child of empire. He enjoyed the empire. He liked thinking about it. He liked traveling around it. He liked fighting in it and writing about it. And I, uh, is it perhaps the case that when he looked at Hitler, he saw a kindred soul? Because Hitler, uh, d- at least in hindsight, we know he wanted to build an empire.
1: Yes, uh, this is a complicated thing because, uh, for a long time, until, until just before the war, Hitler had great admiration for the British, but uh, he thought, not not without reason, that the that it that uh, his plan, Germany's destiny is, let the British Empire be. But let the but at the same time the British must be, uninvolved in Europe, mm-hmm. which incidentally coincided by and large, with the thinking of many people of the British Conservative Party.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm.
1: and uh, Churchill saw the... See, in a way, Churchill was a great European, which is something in terms something the present Tories in England ought to were very anti-European ought to think about.
2: Yeah, that's true. Right. You, you see,
1: you see, Churchill consistently, uh, let's put it this way, saw it this way by the end of the 1930s, that he and Britain had two alternatives. Either all Europe is going to be dominated by Germany, or the eastern portion of Europe is going to be dominated by Russia, and half of Europe is better than none.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, well, that's exactly right. And he was, yes, he was right about that, absolutely. So let me ask you this. How... Um how did you come to write this book particularly? What is the story of this book this
1: is a very this is a very small story. I have written about may one thousand nine hundred and forty and so forth. And an editor, not even my regular publisher, basic Books. I knew Heimer, the editorial mm-hmm. director. And she came to me that she was the devil going to publish a series of books about great texts and great speeches, mm-hmm. and she wanted to ask me whether I would write a small book about Churchill's speeches in 1940. And I said no, <laughs> but, uh, no, but I will write. I will write about one speech. Yeah. The one that was not recorded and that was not well received. Uh This is the speed of which one phrase, this phrase I have nothing to offer, but blood, toil, tears, and sweat, uh, became immortal, but but oddly enough through a kind of accumulation, except for the... uh, House of Commons. Nobody heard it.
0: Yes, that's right. That's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, I didn't it was realize. not
1: broadcast. I mean, uh, the text was only partially reproduced in newspapers. As I emphasize in the book, it was not very well received by the conservatives. And it took some month until somehow the Text I mean this phrase began to
0: reverberate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no i see I see, and it 's a good lesson in that way because we we tend to look back on these things and think that they were instantly popular and famous and cited and so on and so forth, and as you well point out in the book, that just wasn 't the case with blood toil, tears and sweat. Um, I have to make a, an admission though or at least uh, how to best put this. Uh, express my own very expansive ignorance i i and and I'm, this is this is in a form this will hopefully be in the form of a question i um i when i thought about this phrase when he said i have nothing to offer but blood toil tears and sweat the way i had always interpreted it not knowing was that he was saying that he himself had nothing to offer to the british people but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But that isn't the correct reading at all, is it?
1: No, it's not (laughs) incorrect. It's not incorrect, you know. Um, You know, one of the reasons... Why this reverberates and became famous is that uh, this is very much of an unpolitical speech. Someone who becomes prime minister, uh, national leader, he always offers something that at least uh, is good and promising. He yes, didn't.
0: Right. No, he did and,
1: uh, and 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 I think this was not only really very realistic, but very brave things to do. And um, after his speech, I understand he said to some of his family or some of his friends, uh, um, and this is, this is great insight. He said, uh, uh, My people, the British people, uh, are good in uh, taking up or accepting bad
0: news. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, yes. I, think, I think that's probably right. And he, yeah. he understood that. But I, I think one of the things that your book tries to point out quite correctly is that he was really trying to bring British consciousness that is both among the political elite and also among the masses themselves, if I may so speak, into alignment with reality. That in fact, in May 1940, things were going extraordinarily badly.
1: Very much. And he knew this better than others.
0: Yes, that's right. You see, see,
1: there's in the beginning of the book I mentioned that, and you see, Churchill himself obscured this, Uh or ignored this in his own Uh, the very masterly history of the second world war Mm -hmm. i think for kind of educational reasons he gave the impression that really that he did nothing that was terribly extraordinary he simply represented what the british people felt and saw at that time Mm -hmm. and uh, this is not so
2: Mm -hmm. you see
1: you see uh, um, he makes absolutely no reference to, not only to um, how the situation was when he gave that speech, he hardly mentions it. And when two weeks later came the great uh, crisis, the five days in London, when secret it almost seemed that uh, his uh, Secretary of State, uh, uh, Foreign Secretary Lord Halifax, Halifax, quite reasonably suggests that maybe something should be Done. how can britain get out of this war somehow and, um, and he churchill fought him uh, within the very secret session of cabinet eventually churchill had his way um, he never mentions this,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. You know, in his in his uh, uh, beautiful second volume of the uh, history of Second World War, the Finest Hours, he gives the impression. you know he actually writes that uh, the British people were completely united. There was no problem there, mm-hmm. and this is not true. There was a problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, do you think that? Uh, I guess I'm asking for your judgment here. That the he and his cabinet members, that is Halifax and, and Chamberlain and such were seriously considering the possibility of defeat in May nineteen forty. That it was on the
1: horizon. Well, well, he was considering the defeat too, but he said that at this situation, not because of any blind bravery, uh, our only choice is to keep fighting on. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. So when Halifax approaches him with the question of whether they should open up a line of communication with the Germans, Churchill says...
1: Uh, No, because no matter what happens, this very attempt means, and I'm using his uh, phrase, uh, at that moment we have stepped on a slippery slope.
0: Slippery slope, that's exactly right. So he he felt that if this were to leak, then then it would damage morale among the people. Uh,
1: Very much so, And, and he was absolutely right about this. Uh-huh. And it's interesting that even free press it's interesting that none of this was known none of this none of this
0: leaked out. It's very funny. I don't know if you, I don't know if you've followed this is just a kind of ridiculous historical analogy but it turns out that that you know there've been these recent bank failures in the United States. Well it it, yes. it, it turns out that this is because Charles Schumer a uh, 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 re- representative from New York actually started to talk about bank failures about 10 days ago and this caused people to to run the banks so uh, he sh- he should have been reading his churchill <laughs> best to shut up
1: yes no 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 it was amazing you know because there were the press lords in england you see during 1940 except for the bbc the radio the newspapers were terribly important
2: uh-huh
0: uh-huh.
1: there was no television, there were no political discussions, radio and so forth yeah. and it is amazing that uh, nothing of this leaked
0: now it is it is truly that would never. i i hate i yes. though, though it's hard to say what would happen i think such a thing yes. would be impossible today Abs- absolutely absolutely yes. impossible um probably to all, all of our um all of our disaster uh let me let me ask you this though at what point did Churchill decide that the war was winnable
1: uh Well, let's put it this way. This is my phrase. And, um, you know, I'm really answering your question backward. Uh, You know, I have said lately several times that uh, it was Roosevelt and Stalin, America and Russia, that won the Second World War. Mm -hmm. But it was Churchill who didn't lose it.
0: Yeah.
1: You know. And... uh, 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 He thought that the British, especially if the United States would give them some uh, help and so forth, uh, there's a chance of Britain not losing it. Mm -hmm. But he also knew that Britain alone, or even Britain and the United States together, Probably could not defeat Germany. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You see, so he didn't lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the 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 definite point came in December 1941, the night of Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. when he knew, he and Roosevelt knew that the Japanese are going to attack somewhere, but they didn't know it was in Pearl Harbor when the news comes. He he was very glum during that day. He he was one of these black moods, and uh, uh, he he was at dinner, and the butler came in and said, heard on Mm -hmm. the radio that a Japanese attacked the United States, Mm -hmm. and uh, he immediately uh, decided to ring up Roosevelt on the telephone, but for a while he waited, and he said, well, now we have survived. Mm-hmm. You know, We're going to win the war.
0: Mm-hmm. I only have a couple of more questions for you. I'm finding this tremendously fascinating. I had the opportunity to interview an Australian historian a few weeks ago and one of the things that he pointed out to me that I did not know was that uh, the Prime Ministers of Australia, of which there were several during the Second World War, were in the habit of sending uh, telegrams to Churchill explaining that they needed help very badly because they thought Australia would completely cease to exist if... Um, If the Japanese invaded now, uh, did Churchill think at all about what England would be like under a Nazi occupation? What would happen to England?
1: No, no, what he in May 1940 thought that uh, um, he actually wrote this to Roosevelt that uh, uh, He's not gonna surrender but a situation might come about where there is a British government that we'll have to deal with the Germans. He says, I will not do it, but I may have to do it. And, of course, in that case, he would have left England. And then, you know, that's a very important uh, difference he had with Roosevelt. You see, Roosevelt, Roosevelt knew that the situation was very dire, but Roosevelt, who was very... Navy oriented, you know, I mean, he was mm-hmm. assistant secretary of Navy, mm-hmm. there 20 years through the Second World War. He thought, well, if uh, worse comes to worst, the British fleet, which was still after American, the second largest Navy in the world, is going to come over to Canada and the United States. Mm-hmm. And Churchill said, no, I cannot promise this. Mm-hmm. because I will never surrender but if the Germans land in England if the Germans defeat us a future British government the only card they will have in their hand is the navy which was at that time three times larger than Hitler's navy hmm and so that's the only thing that uh, a, a, a British government might have, you know, to use to get somewhat better conditions for a conquering Germany.
0: Mm-hmm. So then you would say, and because this uh, this point has been expressed in historiography recently, that Churchill never considered any sort of negotiated settlement at all. No he just it never entered his mind he would flee over. No. yeah right exactly. well
1: it entered his mind when he said this is this is gonna dismiss I mean we cannot get any reasonable conditions from Hitler
0: yeah and he was I yeah. think in yes. hindsight we can say he was right about that. yes, yes, yes. yes that's right um, let me ask you this question I, I think because I almost must um, in, in reviews of your book Uh, Which I can't say that I've read, but I did look at uh, some of them to see where they had appeared. It's often reviewed with a couple of other books, and I I found the the collection of books it's interviewed with a little bit odd. Um, One is a book by Nicholson Baker called Human Spoke that you might be familiar with, and another is a
1: book. Yes, I I I was asked to read that book is is. Complete nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> it is it, not not because his theme is unhistorical. It's full of the gravest historical mistakes. Uh-huh. It's full. You know, it's not. It's it's because Nicholson Baker shouldn't have written a book. Well, he doesn't know anything about the subject. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
0: As you know, that will very rarely stop an American from writing a book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, my opinion, Hitler, you you see this very well. Uh, There's two books I was asked to review um, and did it reluctantly the last three months, which are very critical of Churchill. Uh-huh. One is Nicholson Baker, the other is Pat Buchanan.
0: Pat Buchanan, that was the other one I was going now, to say. Now,
1: about. Pat Buchanan is, Pat Buchanan's faults. if they are false, is his general view of history. But he knows enough, you know, but you, you know so, so perhaps his book is more dangerous and more insidious.
0: Uh-huh. But
1: Nicholson Baker, he's a faker.
0: Uh-huh, yes. But, no
1: <laughs> well, 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 well. Uh, uh, let me let me give you a, the, the, the most damning example of this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think the title of Baker's book is Human Smoke.
0: Yes, that's right. Yes,
1: all right. And then, as this book finishes, he explains why this is the title.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He says General Halder, who was until nine forty two Hitler's chief of staff, was in the Camp, concentration, extermination camp of Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And there was some smoke coming into his cell or whatever it was. And these were, of course, the gas ovens, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, Halder said, This is human smoke. Mm-hmm. Well, now listen to this. Halder was never in Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And he was never condemned. Mm hmm. You know, so here is his title of his book,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: is a total fabrication or misinformation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no,
1: you I see, You see, Halder never said this and Halder never was an Auschwitz.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I know just what you mean. And I, I, I'm i currently uh, finishing a, a large project on the history of, of communications in the media. And, and one of the things that I've come to learn is that the best way for people to get attention in the United States, is to say completely outrageous things. Um, and I, I, I believe that is this is what we have here. It's, it's, yeah, very, it's a very interesting facet of the media, and especially American culture, that really the way to get attention is to say things that are just beyond belief. Well,
1: well you know, I found I found uh, the first mention of Nicholson Baker is that McGrath, I know him, he used to be the editor of the Times Book Review. I mean, the first page of the Times, he went to interview Nicholson Baker, yeah. who was publishing this important book.
0: Yeah, see, that's just
1: yeah, what I'm talking about. On the about. other <laughs> hand, now this is not, believe me, this is not, on the other hand, my book and other books got absolutely no mention <laughs> to you. <laughs>
0: I, know. I know. Well, as I, as I say, it's uh it's really um it's a little bit like a game of show and tell and uh, the person that brings yes, the yes. dead thing wins and uh, it's really quite a remarkable thing I, I've, I've noticed you know, all this
1: all this, all this always existed you know except that nowadays it's perhaps worse than it used to be and I'll tell you why this is a very dangerous thing that people don't read well because there has been you see human nature doesn't change mm-hmm. but human behavior changes mm-hmm. and there Is an absolutely disastrous shrinking of the attention span. Mm hmm.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I think. And
1: this involves scholars, book reviewers, editors. Publishers, they are there. We, you know, we know. I mean, this world is now full of people who are incapable of listening.
0: Yes. No. I, uh, I, uh, I'm related to some of them.
1: <laughs> so yes. I, yes. Yeah. Very so. often, <laughs> to their own peril. Yes. yes.
0: Yes. I, I know just exactly. There are
1: you. things that they ought to know, not because of your, not only because of your general, their general culture. You know that, but uh, but they don't listen.
0: Yeah, no, I I quite yeah. I quite agree with you. Well, I yeah. promise not to take up too much of your time, but let me ask you all, our all right. our traditional last question. What are you working yeah. on now?
1: Uh, well, I'm working on it. I have to get a uh, publishing contract. Um, I don't know really know that um, I wrote this is uh, was published. Uh, more than a year ago, a short biography of George Cannon mm-hmm. you know, who honored with his friendship, came very close. Um, we exchanged about 400 letters in 50 mm-hmm. years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's a lot of letters.
2: It is a lot of letters.
1: And, uh, well, I mean, both of us. I'd like to publish... Uh, his correspondence with me
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no i think that, that yeah that sounds terrific yeah. actually it's funny because i was at the institute for advanced study for a year and my office was right down the way from george Kennan's, Um and oh, I, really? met, I met I, I was honored to meet him once as well uh, he was very old yeah. at the time and not in good health but I, I talked to him for a few minutes you
1: know he went to his office Regularly until the 99th year of his
0: life. Yes, no, he absolutely did. He was there with his walking stick, and uh, he had kind of he had kind of an earpiece that he would use. And no, it was remarkable. He was remarkably hardworking. Yes,
1: yes, he he began to rely on a stick, not until he was 90 years
0: old. That's absolutely remarkable. (laughs) It's truly remarkable. Well, I hope that when that's published, you will honor us by coming back on the show and talking to us about that book.
1: Yes, well that book is mostly, you know, I will reproduce um, if I get a good publisher all his letters to me are very interesting. They run through the history of the Cold War, but uh, I will only reproduce. I have to abridge some of my letters written to mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. Well, but not his letters.
0: Well, I, I wish you luck with that project, um, John, yes. John. John Lucas, thank you very much for being on the show uh, with us today. I've really appreciated your time, and, I, and, and, and and thanks, thanks for your question. It's my pleasure. Take care, and your now. interest. All right, bye bye now. You've been listening to an interview with John Lucas about his book, Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat, The Dire Warning. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope to talk to you next week.